for an institution or a person to have credibility, it or she or he must have some degree of perceived expertise and some degree of trustworthiness. I was talking to one of my brothers the other day. He's not a, a natural liberal, but he was of the opinion that the Church of England has lost credibility with its recent decision not to move forward in allowing women to become bishops. He found it sad that they were continuing to have public fights over whether gay people should be allowed to marry and whether women could be bishops instead of addressing what he said, things that really matter. I expect the Archbishop of Canterbury would probably agree with him after taking a couple of Advil. Was, he went on to say the BBC had lost credibility with its handling of scandals and the cover-ups of criminal activities of a popular presenter of programs for children. He said that things had reached a pretty low point when the major institution to which one can look for credibility is the government, with an upper-class prime minister who says, call me Dave. He, he thought this was pretty much the end of things. See, credibility is about some combination of expertise and trustworthiness, and we who work, make up the church have to work to be credible every day, most especially when a majority of our co-religionists espouse and proclaim a version of the faith that we find incredible. I don't expect that many of you are familiar with the name Rob Bell, but if you are, it's possibly because there's a profile of him in a recent New Yorker magazine. He was the founding pastor of an influential megachurch called Mars Hill in Michigan, and he wrote a book a couple of years ago that got a lot of press, particularly in evangelical circles. It was called Love Wins, and he questioned the reality of hell. And that was, for many of the people to whom he spoke and in the world in which he lived, this was a major uh, problem and challenge. I've, I've always enjoyed the Jesuit friend of mine who years ago said, I'm obliged to believe in hell. I'm not obliged to believe there's anyone in it. And that's... Uh, <laughs> He's, Rob Bell is discovering sort of liberal Protestant theology from years ago in many ways, um, and, and, and it became a problem for him because he wasn't towing the fundamentalist evangelical line, and it led him on a journey that, uh, that led him to resign from his church, loved by many but criticized by more, and he began to question church itself, he recognized a tension between the necessary, uh, uh, the necessary consistency and structure and even caution that's involved in keeping thousands of members uh, happy uh, with, with their faith. He struggled to become comfortable with church in any form at all. And in this respect, he's, he's like many who found great ecclesial institutions to be without credibility when seeking some kind of spiritual life. It's not how he describes his own journey, but it seems to me he found himself in a strange way aligning himself with those who call themselves spiritual but not religious. Some of you know I wrote an undergraduate thesis on the 20th century German theologian Bartian called uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was imprisoned, eventually killed by the Nazis toward the end of the Second World War for participating in the German resistance to Hitler. And some of his most compelling uh, or, or exciting writing came while he was in prison. And he wrote uh, letters from his cell. And in some of those, he began to, began to explore a concept of what he called religionless Christianity. 
and there may be some issues of translation around that, but it seems to have meant faith without religiosity. He admired the fortitude of some of his atheistic fellow captives and was dismayed by the fearful mewling of those who called themselves Christian. He wasn't opposed to church at all, but he wanted to see real faith rather than a kind of churchy piety. He did not say this directly, but he would have found baptism to be more about death than about purity, more about radically new life than about cleansing. The behavior of some Christians who he called religious undermined the credibility of the church and undermined the credibility of the faith, and thus it ever was. Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to a friend of his on the occasion of his friend's son's baptism. And it could have been written today in some ways. Our church, which has been fighting in these years only for its self-preservation, as though that was an end in itself, is incapable of taking the word of reconciliation and redemption to mankind and to the world. He certainly saw baptism as a powerful word to a broken world, just as it can be today. But he looked for a new beginning for everything that he understood by church. And in this, he was probably not so far from the work of Rob Bell and that band of pastors across the country who start churches for those who dislike church. The difference is that Bonhoeffer knew that any community will eventually take on some institutional forms in some way. And he also knew that those forms could never be made to appear of ultimate concern if the community of the faithful were to retain credibility. In fact, his church is not the problem. It's churchiness that is the problem. One churchly claim that needs to be addressed today and with great care is the assumption that in the end, the whole world will realize that Christ is the King of King and Lord of Lords, the King of all history. And our worship this morning is filled with claims that could be heard as triumphal. And if they're heard that way, then we are rend- or said that way, then we are rendering the faith incredible. Jesus shall reign. Crown him with many crowns. The ancient one on his throne of fiery flames. Jesus, the ruler of the kings of earth. This is the kind of thing that has led some to claim without irony that Christianity is the only true faith. And then in time, everyone, probably after death, everyone will come to recognize the reality that Christ is the cosmic ruler of all things. Now, there's some sense in which that can be metaphorical, imaginative language to talk about what we'll discover that is beyond words about God. But it also leads some people to this kind of smug Christianity that says, well, I know you think you're a Hindu, but after death you realize it's all about Jesus. And therefore, it's all about me. And therefore, we're right. And you're going to discover that we're really right after you die. And that's incredible. That's just intolerably smug to assume that God is only going to produce one language and one way for people to respond. And it's a claim with a kind of smugness that is undermined by the gospel itself, the message in which Jesus avoids being called a king, at least the kind of king that would be understood by authorities. Smug and simple Christianity the kind that wants to relegate all religious expression to be somehow less than or subject to a Christian vision, that kind of 
Christianity undermines credibility. It's the kind of Christianity that is filled with religiosity that would make the world smaller than it is, forgetting that creation includes ever-expanding universes expanding with ever-greater speeds. That small Christianity is the kind that turns people into objects because I need you to come fill my pews so that I can feel better about myself and keep the institution going. That's small. That kind of Christianity, it's the kind of Christianity that would limit the vision of what might be to what happened yesterday. That would turn the graceful story of God's grace and love into a set of legal shackles and much else besides that renders our faith unbelievable or incredible. What does not render it incredible is the sort of thing we see and hear in Jesus. Authenticity, humility, integrity of the kind that we see when he says, come and see. He doesn't try and impose his will on people. It's always invitation. This is the faith that says to others, I hear the call and claim of God in my life and the story of Jesus. Absolutely. This is where I find life and meaning and what really matters in the community of people who tell this story. You're welcome to walk this way with me. If you'd like to, come and see. But I'd also like to know about your way as well. Brothers and sisters, we are not baptized in an institution without credibility. We're baptized into Christ. We're not baptized into a church filled with gobbledygook. We are baptized into a community of people that helps us know who we are and what really matters in life. We're not baptized into an incredible set of doctrines, but a community that spans generations, and which has to change and has to be born anew in every generation. We're not baptized into a kind of cosmic empire with the unbelievable requirement that we bow down to a cosmic emperor. We are baptized into the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the rulership of God, which is even now apparent in our midst, wherever we see authenticity, and integrity and real effective love of the kind that we tell about in the story of Jesus who came into the world to testify to the truth, to what really matters, to what is of ultimate concern. And therefore we say with confidence that when we baptize Anna and Will before us, this is and will be a credible sign of light and life in a sinful and broken world, and a baptism into a credible, lively faith, and a lively community of faith, to which day by day we bear witness ourselves with our lives. I offer this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.